As Josh mentioned earlier in the service, over the last two Sundays, we've looked at the Psalms of Lament. And the Psalms of Lament give us words and a way to relate to God during times of disorientation, during times of pain, when things are not all right in the world. And right now, I think especially in 2020, we need the Psalms of Lament right now, don't we? We need these words. When we look outside of ourselves at the world, we see that all is not right. Too often when we look at the church, we see that all is not right. And when we turn and we look at ourselves, we again see that all is not right. The Psalms of Lament, they give us words, they give us a framework, and they even give us permission to go before our God, to bring our pain to Him, to come to Him in the midst of our disorientation. And this summer, we're going through the different genres of the Psalms. I know we've been talking about that a lot through the last few weeks. Uh, We started with hymns, then Psalms of Lament, and now, as Josh said, Psalms of Confidence. And then in two weeks, we're going to be looking at Psalms of Thanksgiving. And Psalms of Thanksgiving and Psalms of Lament go very well together. If Psalms of Lament are crying out to the Lord for deliverance, Psalms of Thanksgiving are responding in thankfulness and praise to God because he delivered us. Psalm 34, it's it's a classic Psalm of Thanksgiving. So I want you to notice how uh, David's praise in Psalm 34 is a response to God hearing him. I sought the Lord... And he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. So in essence, David is saying, I brought my prayer of lament to you, God, and you heard me. Praise be to God for hearing my cry of lament. So those two major categories that go so well together, Psalms of Lament and Psalms of Thanksgiving. But if we really think about how these things work in the real world, it seems that there's something missing in there. How often, when you cry out to God for help, when you bring your prayer of lamentation, how often is that that problem solved immediately? How often do you pray and just like, boom, right away, thank you God, you delivered me from it, I can thank you. That might happen sometimes, but it doesn't happen always, and it doesn't really even happen often. There's this time in the real world where there's a space in between our lament, our crying out to God, and Him delivering us from that thing that we are crying out to Him for. We might even cry out to God for years before He delivers us. And for some things... We're going to have to wait until either Christ returns or we go to be with the Lord when we have an ultimate deliverance and solution to our pain and our struggles in this life. And what Psalms of Confidence do is they teach us how to live in that in-between when we have brought our cry to the Lord, but it still hasn't been solved. If you want a good definition for Psalms of uh, Confidence, it would be this— that psalms of confidence are written from the middle of an unresolved struggle. Psalms of confidence are written from the middle of an unresolved struggle. And what they help us to do 
is to move beyond the place of lament to a place of rest, a place of peace, a place of hopeful confidence in the Lord, even in the midst of our struggle. And that's really good, because I don't, I don't think I could live in never-ending lament for the rest of my days. I don't think I could wake up in the morning and just cry until the evening for years on end. We need to be able to move past our lament. We need to be able to move into a place of peace and a place of rest. And the psalm that we're looking at this morning is probably the most famous psalm of confidence. And we don't always think of it as a psalm of confidence, and I think we we should. It's Psalm 23. If you've noticed, throughout we've had a lot of shepherd imagery in uh, the service so far today. And because Psalm 23 is so well known to many of you, it's so well known to me, I just really want to challenge you to listen closely when I read Psalm 23, and really listen closely to the sermon Sometimes when things become very familiar, it's actually hard for us to move beyond what we already know about something, to learn something new and have it applied in a new way to our hearts. So particularly as I read through Psalm 23, as we go through it in the sermon this morning, I want you to listen to it as a psalm of confidence. Listen to it as being words in the middle of pain, words sung out and prayed out to God in the middle of Uh, In David's case, in the middle of enemies coming against him, in the middle of his fear. So let's go to God's word. Psalm 23. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you this morning. We ask that you would speak to us in your word. Father, in the midst of the fears and worries of this world, help us to listen to you, and may all other words fade away. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. Amen. So before we dive really into the specifics of Psalm 23, I want to just zoom out for a moment. I want us to look at the psalm as a whole to kind of get our bearings and kind of see what's going on in Psalm 23 at large, to kind of get a roadmap for approaching and diving into the little particulars of the passage. So if you spend a lot of time in the Psalms in general, you'll notice that vivid imagery is essential to the way that the Psalms communicate, essential to the way that the Psalms cry out to God and pray, uh, because Psalms are, are Hebrew poetry, and uh, metaphor and imagery is just one of the basic parts of how Hebrew poetry works. 
And if you look at Psalm 23, there are two main images about who the Lord is. One of them is very familiar to us. It's the one that stands out right away when we read Psalm 23. And the other one is one that we might miss. The first is in verses 1 through 4. And the image is that God is a shepherd, particularly that the Lord is my shepherd. And so it's dealing with the imagery of a shepherd to communicate about the character of God and who God is. But the second one is in verses 5 through 6. And the image in verses 5 through 6 is the Lord as a host. Lord as a host. And I'll dive more into what that means in a little bit. But I just want you to be able to see that, see that larger structure in the psalm. And that's going to inform and kind of provide the framework for our big idea this morning. So if you're taking notes, I'll try to read this slowly, and I will repeat it so that you can write it down. Our big idea is this. Even in the midst of the fears of this life, we can have confidence and hope because the Lord is our good shepherd, one, and also because the Lord is our abundant host. Even in the midst of the fears of this life, we can have confidence and hope because the Lord is our good shepherd and the Lord is our abundant host. So let's dive in and start to look at the particulars. Our first main point Even in the midst of the fears of this life, we can have confidence and hope because the Lord is our good shepherd. The Lord is our good shepherd. Now what I want you to do is imagine for a moment that you are going to take an expedition into the Amazon rainforest. I just watched a movie with Brent a couple weeks ago where they went on a journey into the Amazon, so it's kind of in my mind. So I want you to imagine that you're going out in the Amazon rainforest and you're going to be gone for weeks and you're wandering out there, and right before you leave on your journey into the Amazon, you are given a choice between 10 different guides, people who will go with you on your journey, who will lead you through the rainforest, who will help you find food, who will protect you from poisonous things and pumas and all of that. And these 10 different people have a variety of varying skill sets and varying experience in the rainforest. Some of them have been guiding in the rainforest their whole life for decades. Some of them are pretty new. Some of them look really strong, like they could just punch a puma in the face and it would run away. But some of them look kind of older and weak. And I bet if you were going out into the Amazon rainforest, that you would choose very carefully who your guide was going to be. You would do your research into these 10 people. Because for you in the Amazon, it could be a matter of life or death, who your guide was. If you chose the wrong one, it might not work out so well for you. Now similarly, in the terrain of Israel, in the days of David, it was a dangerous place for sheep to be. For sheep to go off on their own. They could wander off and get lost. They could fall into a ravine and die. They could get eaten by a wolf or a lion or a bear or stolen by a thief. It was not a safe place for you to be as a sheep. And who your shepherd was and his skills, his ability as a shepherd, really made all of the difference for you. You wanted to have a good shepherd if you were a sheep in those dangerous places. And that's why right away in Psalm 23, David states so emphatically, the Lord is my shepherd. Not, I'm my own shepherd, thank you very much. Not, 
some other ruler or leader or power is my shepherd and the one that will protect me. Not that some other God or some God out there will protect me. No, the Lord is my shepherd. And as Josh mentioned a couple, uh, last week, actually, I think, that whenever you see in the Old Testament, Lord in all caps, it's the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's God's personal and his covenant name. So it's not just a title. It's not just like the Lord is a title. It's much more than that. It's God's personal name. I heard one commentator, or read one commentator, who mentioned that it's like the difference between a husband calling his spouse the wife and him calling her by her real name. If I'm ever hanging out at men's group and I say, I got to go home to be with the wife, I give you all permission to say, stop it, James. Don't do that. Your wife has a name. Yahweh is the name of God, not just a title, though it in some ways is a title, that he is the Lord. But I want you to see that. David is confident in the God who makes promises to his people, the one who enters into a relationship with his people, who knows him. That God is the one who is his shepherd. And that God is the one who will protect him, is the one who will guide him through the wilderness. And what does the shepherd do? He does three things. And I want you to see this through verses 2 and 3. First, the shepherd provides for us. Second, he leads us. And third, he protects us. So the Lord is our good shepherd who provides for us, who leads us, and protects us. So let's look at the first of these. The Lord is the good shepherd who provides for us. If you look at verse 1, there's a result to the Lord being David's shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, therefore, it's kind of implied in there, therefore, I shall not want. And when David says, I shall not want, it doesn't mean that he's always going to get every single thing that he wants. It's not saying, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore, if I really want a new bass boat, I'm going to get that new bass boat. It's really saying, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore, I have everything that I could possibly need because of the Lord. Deuteronomy 2.7 repeats, or kind of parallels this language, and it talks about the Lord's providing for Israel in their 40 years in the wilderness uh, after they left Egypt and before going into the promised land. Deuteronomy 2.7 says this, These 40 years the Lord God, Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. During those 40 years in the wilderness, if you know your Bible well, it wasn't a time of abundance for the people of God. It's not like they just got all the things that they wanted, but that God was with them day by day, that he provided their daily needs, that he gave them the food that they needed, he gave them the water that they needed. The Lord provided for his sheep. And what does that look like in Psalm 23? A couple things. Verse 2 and 3, he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters, and he restores my soul. And I think part of the reason that Psalm 23 is so popular for us is that the imagery just makes sense to us. Sometimes we read through the Psalms and there's, there's a metaphor that we just don't get. It just doesn't connect with our day and age. And I don't know if any of you have ever worked with sheep. I did some work with sheep growing up, actually, which was a lot of fun working out on a farm. But even if you haven't worked with sheep, you can probably get the imagery right here. You know, you know sheep need to eat grass and they need good water, and this abundant green field just sounds like a great place for a sheep to be. 
But it's good providing for by the shepherd, not just because the shepherd's giving the sheep food, but because the shepherd is giving the sheep rest and refreshing and restoring. In a way, it's kind of like the shepherd being a good doctor for the sheep. He's healing the sheep. David says that he, uh, you res- he restores my soul. And that's exactly what we need, right? In the middle of our, our souls being thirsty and weary and storm-battered, what we need is a God who not only just provides our basic needs, but a God who restores us, a God who refreshes us, a God who leads us to a place where we can rest in him and what he has done. So the shepherd provides for us. The shepherd also leads us. In verse 3, David says, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And these paths of righteousness that he talks about kind of have multiple layers of meaning. And on one level, you can translate paths of righteousness just as right paths or as good paths. So the shepherd knows what the correct paths are. When he's leading me along, he knows which direction to take me. He knows how to get me to that one field that has the green grass. You know, he, he takes the correct path to go everywhere he goes. But it also kind of has a moral dimension, which is brought out in the ESV's translation, paths of righteousness. That the Lord leaves, leads me in paths of obedience to him. He leads me in righteous paths. And why does he lead us on these paths? This is really important. It says, for his name's sake. Why does the Lord lead us in right paths and righteous paths? He leads us for the purpose of his own glory. And that actually gives us a ton of confidence. If you think deeply about this, the, the fact that the Lord lead us, leading us in the correct path and in the righteous path leads to his own glory. It means that if the Lord was to lead us in a wrong path, it would actually go against his own glory. It would put a stain on his own name, which actually gives us a ton of confidence because the Lord is never going to put a stain on his own name. The Lord's passionate for his glory. And because of that, we can actually be confident that the paths he's going to lead us will always be right. He's leading us on these paths for his namesake, for his glory. And there's one other really important thing that I think can be missed in Psalm 23 about the Lord leading his sheep. If you look at verse 4, we see this really well-known image here of the valley of the shadow of death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What we need to see is that the valley of the shadow of death and the path through it is one of those paths of righteousness that David talks about. One of the right paths that the Lord leads his sheep through is the path through the valley. Dark Valley could be a frightening place. That was the place of danger for a sheep. That's where you could slip and fall off the path. That's where the dangerous animals would hide. But for the good shepherd, even that dark place, even that frightening and dangerous place is a good place because it's the place we have been brought to by our good shepherd who leads us well. So he provides for us, he leads us, and he protects us. So let's kind of finish out verse 4 here in this shepherd imagery. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why will I fear no evil? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
So David's saying he can walk through the valley. And really, a lot of this psalm takes place from the perspective of the valley. I'm walking through the valley right now, but I know you lead to good pastors. And we're going to talk about, Lord, you are a good host. But it's from the perspective of the valley that he's writing so much of this. And he can be confident even in the valley because the Lord is with him in an intimate and personal way. I want you to look at the pronouns. If you know what pronouns are, it's, it's I and you, he, she, it, all of those different things. Um, the, the pronouns shift from verses 1 to 3 to verse 4, and it's actually really neat and really important. It starts with the third person pronoun, he, to talk about God. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, all of these things. And in verse 4, though, it switches to the second person pronoun. It talks to God directly. It's no longer talking about God. David is talking to God. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord, in David's mind, the Lord is with him and present with him in a special way in the midst of the valley. And I think we need to remember that a lot of times. It seems that when we're in dark times, when we are in the midst of fear or pain or any struggle that we might face, that those are the moments we think that the Lord is farthest from us. That those are the moments when maybe my relationship with the Lord is not really that great. That he's far off and maybe he's not as intimately close and personally with me. But in David's mind, it's in the valley that the Lord is with him in a special way. So we need to change the way that we think often in the midst of struggle. I'm here because the Lord led me here for his glory, for his good purposes, and I can trust him. And he's also with me, particularly in a special way in the midst of this struggle. The Lord is with me. And the Lord is with me in this special way, and it brings comfort because of the Lord's rod and the Lord's staff. I want to talk a bit about both of these things. The, the rod and the staff are two essential tools for a good shepherd. You can think of the rod kind of like a club. The rod was a weapon, something that you would use to beat off the animals that would come and try to steal your sheep. So it was a really important tool for you to have. And often I think that we should kind of change the way that we think about shepherds. If you've ever seen paintings of, you know, Psalm 23 and everything, it's always this shepherd and this these really nice clean robes, walking through this beautiful green valley, holding this little white fluffy lamb or something like that. But really, if we want to get the picture of this shepherd, this shepherd is like a grizzled warrior who's just like holding his weapon, right? He's walking in. He's not going to take it from a, a lion or a bear or a wolf. We see in 1 Samuel that David himself fought off lions and bears as a shepherd. Shepherds were tough people, right? They were strong. And it was that strength, it was that warrior nature of the Lord on behalf of David that made him confident. But the Lord also carried a staff for the protection of the sheep. And the staff was what the shepherd would, well, he could use it as a weapon, but would also use it to discipline the sheep and to direct the sheep to maybe kind of keep the sheep from going off the side of a cliff. He would use his staff. So really there's two things that a, she that a sheep needs to be protected from. It needs to be protected from enemies, and the sheep needs to be protected from itself, right? And we don't often think about that. We need to be protected not only from our enemies, we actually need to be protected from ourselves. And the way that the Lord protects us from ourselves is through his discipline of us. 
I remember when I was a kid, my family would always go on road trips. Like, we only flew to one place, I think, when I was a kid, and that was New York City. But we'd always drive all around the United States. Every summer, we'd go on one big trip. And I remember the year that we went out to the Grand Canyon, uh, that the whole ride out, my mom read to us this book called Death in the Grand Canyon, which was great. My mom was, it, my mom is extremely afraid of heights. She gets nervous even driving over tall bridges and on roads up the sides of mountains. She's just really afraid of heights. And she was deathly afraid that we were going to fall into the canyon. So one of her strategies for keeping us from falling into this canyon and dying was to read us horror stories of people who walked too close to the canyon and the rocks slipped and they went tumbling to their death. And she hoped that it would warn us, that she would kind of put this holy fear in us of this massive canyon that was sitting in front of us so we wouldn't fall into it. And then the whole time we were there, my parents were just like constantly calling out to us, get away from the edge, get away from the edge. No, stay, stay 10 feet back. I don't want you looking over. Don't look over, James. Don't do it. And they walked and they held my little brother's hand the whole time. And my mom had a vice grip on his hand. She would not let him go anywhere because my little brother was, I don't remember how old, but he was really young, maybe like Porter's age. And you don't let a little kid wander around at the Grand Canyon. So that warning from my parents and that discipline from my parents, they disciplined us a lot the week we were at the Grand Canyon. It was for our good. It was to protect us, actually to protect us from ourselves, from making some dumb mistake and walking too close to the canyon wall. And the Lord does the same thing for us. When he disciplines us, it's for our good. It's to protect us from our sin, to call us out in our sin, to save us from it and draw us away from it. And so when we are join this community of this church and church discipline happens and you submit yourself as when you become a member of the Living Stone to be under the discipline of this church, I want you to remember that even church discipline is a way that the Lord protects us. It's for your good. It's not so we can like make fun of you or make you feel bad about yourself if church discipline happens. It's actually for your good. It's for your protection. And we need to remember what God says in Proverbs 3 and in Hebrews 12, that the Lord disciplines those who he loves. The Lord doesn't discipline you. It's actually because he doesn't love you. And if he does discipline you, it's because he does love you. When we think about the work of the shepherd, I think that it's one of the greatest sources of confidence and assurance for us in the Christian life. I've gone through periods in my Christian life where I've really struggled with assurance of my salvation. I've I remember nights when I was a kid staying up late praying the sinner's prayer over and over and over again because I didn't think that I had meant it enough the time before. I was like, maybe if I just mean it hard enough, maybe this time I can really be confident that I'll be saved. But our confidence doesn't lie in ourselves. Our confidence lies in our shepherd. And our confidence lies in Christ, who is our good shepherd. I want to read for you just a little section of John 10. Describes Christ as our good shepherd. Christ describes himself. And notice the way he describes the way he protects his sheep. This is really important. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, says the Lord. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I love that last line. No one will snatch them out of my hand. In the midst of our chaotic world, in the midst of the fears that you might face right now in this age, in the midst of seeing your own sin and your own brokenness, we can look to a shepherd who protects us well, a shepherd who holds us, a shepherd who is strong enough to keep us, a shepherd who has laid down his life for us, and no one can snatch us from the hands of our shepherd. He is a good shepherd who will lose none of his sheep. And that is our confidence. Not us, not anything else in the world, not the economy, not politics. Our ultimate confidence is Christ. Our ultimate confidence is our shepherd. So we've seen, just to recap, we've seen that the Lord is our shepherd. And now let's look at the second image. The Lord is our abundant host. And there's two parts of the Lord being our abundant host. The first is from verse 5. The Lord is our abundant host who gives us a feast. The second is verse 6. The Lord is our abundant host who gives us a dwelling place. So let's look at the first one. The Lord is our abundant host who gives us a feast. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Love this language. It's, it's language of vast abundance. That David is a guest in the Lord's house, and the Lord anoints his head with oil, this, this beautiful smelling, fragrant oil, that he prepares this, mis- this feast before him at this table. The Lord fills his cup, but doesn't just give him a little bit of something to drink. He, he fills his cup to overflowing. But notice there's one thing that seems to be out of place in here. In the presence of my enemies. The Lord is throwing this feast for David. Giving David all of these things, but the enemies are still there. I want you to like picture this. Picture David sitting at this table, and the Lord serving him this meal. And his enemies are standing around him with their swords drawn and their spears drawn. And they're standing there around David, against him. But David's sitting there in peace. Sitting there and partaking of this feast that the Lord has given him. So even in the midst of all of the chaos, we can have confidence, tr- confidence and trust in a Lord who provides for us as a host. And then we can also have confidence in our abundant host who gives us a dwelling place, is that second point. Gives us a dwelling place in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. The words follow me here, I think they can even be better translated as pursue me. So it's saying that, the, that God's goodness and his mercy, which is the Hebrew word hesed, which we mention a lot in the Psalms. It's a really important repeated word talking about God's steadfast love, his unfailing love for his people. That God's goodness and his steadfast love don't just follow me wherever I go. They pursue me wherever I go. And so whenever David was being pursued by his enemies, there was something much stronger that was also pursuing him. It was the Lord pursuing him. The Lord pursuing him with his goodness and his mercy, ultimately leading him to one place. 
and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in the, in the end, God doesn't just invite us over for a feast and then say, bye, I'm going to send you home, have a good time. No, in the end, the Lord pursues us to the end, invites us, lays a table before us, and gives us a dwelling place, a place in his presence for all eternity. And that's good news for us in the midst of our struggle, that we have a sure hope that we can look to, that we will dwell in the presence of our God forever. Now, as we come to the Lord's table today, I want us to remember that Christ truly is our good shepherd and that Christ is our abundant host. Christ is our good shepherd because Christ feeds us and Christ restores and refreshes our souls even in a dry and weary land. He provides not just for our physical needs, but in the Lord's Supper, Christ provides for our spiritual needs. Our faith is fed. And our souls are restored and refreshed when we come to the Lord's Supper. And Christ is also our abundant host. He spreads out a table for us, even in the midst of this dark world. And this feast that we partake of isn't abundant because, like, the little cracker or a piece of bread and the little cup of wine or juice are so extravagant in and of themselves. The table that the Lord spreads before us is abundant and extravagant because Christ is sufficient for us. Because Christ is satisfying, sustaining. Because Christ is enjoyable, even more enjoyable than the great, greatest earthly feast that we can partake of. This meal is an abundant feast because we spiritually partake of Christ's blessings and Christ's promises. And lastly, I want to focus in just on verse, little piece of verse 5 in the Lord's Supper. My cup overflows... In the Old Testament, there's two images that really come with the word cup. Cup can mean, on one hand, the cup of salvation and the cup of blessing, like it does in Psalm 116. I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. But the cup in the Old Testament can also be the cup of God's wrath, like in Isaiah 51:17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have the bowl, the cup of staggering. When Christ lays out the feast before us, he gives us a cup. And this cup that we drink is a cup of salvation and a cup of blessing for us, only because Christ first drank the cup of wrath in our place. Christ drank the cup of wrath that we would have the cup of blessing. So if you come to the table today, I want you to come to be fed Come to be sustained. Come to fellowship with Jesus. Come to drink of God's abundant blessing for us in Christ. But also come with remembrance. Come to remember Christ. Come to remember the abundant salvation that is yours only because Christ, your abundant and good host, drank for you the cup of God's wrath and gives to you the cup of salvation and blessing. And only because your good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep and will keep you to the end. Let's pray. Lord, you are our good shepherd, therefore we shall not want. You provide for us. You lead us. You protect us. 
Lord, you are our host and you have set a table before us, even in the presence of our enemies. Even though in this life we walk through the valley, God, you are with us. Father, give us confidence and hope in the valley by helping us to take our eyes off of ourselves and our surroundings and by fixing our eyes upon Jesus, our good shepherd, and his work for us. In you we place our trust and in you we find our hope. Amen.